Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. Now, you may have missed this. In fact, you probably missed this. But this week, we saw one of history's great split-screen moments. On Tuesday, Tuesday, at the exact same time that former President Trump was being arraigned in Florida, not only were fake electors from Trump's plot to overturn the 2020 election, not only were those fake electors testifying before special counsel Jack Smith's January 6th grand jury, But at the same moment, congressional Republicans were holding their own bizarro hearing about January 6th. At the exact same time, a former president was arraigned on federal criminal charges related to unlawfully hoarding documents. Witnesses were testifying in Jack Smith's other sprawling federal investigation into that same former president, all while that former president's congressional defenders were hard at work whitewashing the January 6th insurrection all at the same time. That sort of wild convergence belongs in the history books. And while the arraignment and the investigation of a former president is clearly of utmost importance here, I think it is worth paying attention to the fake story from Tuesday as well, the thing that was happening in Congress. Now, the witnesses for Tuesday's January 6th hearing ranged from January 6th rioters all the way up to Jeffrey Clark, Jeffrey Clark, if you recall, was the person Trump wanted to appoint as his acting attorney general in the final days of his administration so that Jeffrey Clark could declare the election stolen. So Jeffrey Clark and a bunch of January 6th rioters. That was the focus of this thing in Congress. Now, the hearing opened with a video that was edited like a newsreel from the start of a horror film with distorted colors and a creepy soundtrack. And it suggested that January 6th was actually an inside job perpetrated by the deep state. But here is the thing about this. It wasn't a real hearing. This hearing was chaired, and I'm using vocal air quotes there, by Florida Congressman Matt Gates, who is not actually the chair of a congressional committee. But on Tuesday, he pretended he was. He brought in his witnesses and he used all the formal lingo that they use in these congressional committee hearings. He told people they were recognized for various amounts of time and that their time had expired. And that was all sort of beside the point because there was no actual allotted time for any of this because it was just something that Matt Gates was doing on his own in the hopes that someone somewhere would pay attention to it. All of the testimony from today and all of the record that is being kept today will be available for members to submit uh, for the official record of the House. We're going to proceed with the second round, and we'll begin with generally from Georgia Screen. Thank you. This has been a highly productive endeavor, and we stand adjourned. We stand adjourned. It was like Model UN, but instead of high schoolers mocking up a a hearing on a Uh, the crisis in Kashmir, it was Matt Gates and a bunch of MAGA celebrities trying to gaslight the public. A fake hearing. More than two years after January 6th, congressional Republicans are still trying to convince the public that the insurrection was actually an FBI plot and the real victims here are the rioters. This was the Republican playbook in action going out of their way to turn the focus on the investigators instead of Trump and his allies. Which is, by the way, exactly the strategy they used in this other news story that you may have missed this week. This Wednesday, House Republicans failed to get enough votes in the Republican-controlled House to censure Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. 
20 Republicans joined Democrats in killing that effort. I kid you not, the reason House Republicans wanted to formally censure Schiff was for his role in investigating and impeaching former President Trump. Another attempt to distract from Trump's very regal, very real legal peril here by pointing the finger at a Democrat. And in this case, that Democrat was Congressman Adam Schiff. The congresswoman who introduced that censure resolution said today that she plans to reintroduce a revised version of it soon, even though it failed the first time, because why not just keep trying over and over again forever? And this playbook, which we have seen time and time again, in fact, we've seen it multiple times just this week. This playbook is, of course, being used when it comes to Trump's indictment in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. The New York Times today tracked every single response to Trump's indictment by Republicans in the House and in the Senate. More than half of those Republicans have made some sort of statement about it. A small number have taken the indictment seriously, but the majority of them have not. At least 100 of them questioned the fairness and the timing of the indictment itself, implying that the investigators here are the ones who have been up to no good. And that includes people like Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who said, quote, now Biden's leading political opponent is indicted and called the indictment a double standard that he swore he would investigate. And then there are about another hundred Republicans who went one step further, attacking special counsel Jack Smith and the Justice Department's motivations directly. Like Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who said the Justice Department has been weaponized and that this is all political persecution. But leading the pack, leading the pack of this group of people are nearly two dozen elected officials saying stuff like this. Senator Ted Cruz compared Joe Biden to Stalin. Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert called it a witch hunt and a sham. And others like Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs called for the dismantling of the Department of Justice altogether. So they are blaming President Biden. They are blaming the Department of Justice. They are blaming the special counsel, Jack Smith. It's all corrupt. They are all corrupt. It's all corruption. Yet again, Republicans are pointing the finger at the investigators, the ones looking into Russia and January 6th and Mar-a-Lago, and they are pointing them at anyone but Trump himself. Joining me now is staff writer at The Atlantic, Mark, Le- Mark Leibovich. Mark, thank you for joining me. I, I heard about this faux congressional hearing led by Matt Gates, and I said, there is literally one person I want to talk to about this, and his name is Mark Leibovich. The point of this, Mark, seems to be largely the point of the Republican Party in Congress right now, which is theater. The theater is the point. It doesn't really seem like the governing or the policy is the point. The theater seems to be the point. How do you assess Matt Gaetz's tomfoolery this week? Yeah, I mean, it's it's theater, but it's really, really amateur theater, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, I was looking at those clips and it's it's right out of Wayne's world. I mean, it's like it's Aurora public access television, uh, like down to the bad lighting. I mean, the, the the sort of forced applause and so forth. I mean, the, the other part of this is they're just not very good at it. And it looks more and more pathetic and laughable. I mean, except when, you know, you do sort of force yourself to step back and say, wait, what is this about? And then you realize it's really, really sad and it's really, really dangerous, especially um, when you have, you 
you know, the, the thing that's harder, hardest for me to get my head around and to accept is the people who know better. I mean, yes, there are a lot of people in Congress who don't take their jobs particularly seriously and obviously don't think terribly highly of their uh, voters, their electorate, because they insult them every step of the way. Um, you know, the Ted Cruz's, the Josh Hawley's, the Kevin McCarthy's of the world all know better. I mean, I, I guarantee you, if you were to put a open mic or, or just some kind of you know recording device on every single one of these people um, for like an hour after they stop their like show trials and stuff, you know, you would hear them just sort of expressing some kind of um, self-loathing, self-awareness, just laughter over what they're doing. They all know what they're doing. That's really sad and it's really, really dangerous. But unfortunately, it's the world we're living in and it's the GOP that, um, you know, we're, we're all sort of watching every day. Yeah, you know, as amateur as it is and how, you know, as, as transparently um, false as the, accu- the accusations are, what what the problem with it i think that is probably most distressing is this notion that you know somehow january 6 was an inside job somehow the the you know the institution that needs to be looked at is the department of justice the fbi that the investi- you know all of this trickles up i mean the groundwater in some ways gets poisoned in events like this and then works its way onto fox news and then sooner or later you have people who are vying for the republican presidential nomination parroting a slightly more sanitized version of the wackadoodle theories that Matt Gates is floating in his fake fake hearing. I mean, I get what you're saying about the sort of the farce of it all, but I think it has real implications. And I guess I wonder, you know, you've talked to these Republicans. They they I think know what they're saying is false, but there seems to be no amount of shame in it. I mean, just because it's it, it becomes effectively Republican orthodoxy. Yeah, no, that's what it is. And, you know, you, you could sort of see that cast into sharp relief. Like every time every one of them is asked, hey, did you actually read the indictment? They said, oh, I don't have time to. Or, uh, oh, well, you know, it's it's tainted to begin with. Why should I waste my time? I mean, you know, this, this is not a serious inquiry, obviously. Um, you know, again, I, I do think that they do know what they're doing. And um, that's a sad part of it because, I mean, the other thing is it's not exactly – um, in their self-interest. I mean, it doesn't seem to be a political strategy that's working in any way, shape, or form. And if anything, um, they, as they go farther down the rabbit hole, which is, seems to be the only direction they know at this point, um, they get deeper and deeper into a narrative that really can't be sustained if it ever was sustainable. So, look, they might be in safe seats. I mean, Ted Cruz might certainly be the favorite to win re-election next year in Texas, but it certainly doesn't help the overall argument. And also, by the way, if you look at some of the surveys around here, I think it was um, Ron, no, it wasn't Ron Brownstein, it was Ezra Klein, uh, or no, maybe David Leonhardt said today that, I mean, Republican polling is actually moving in a direction where more people um, on the right are actually recognizing that Donald Trump, you know, has done some pretty serious things wrong. And while it still might not be a majority, it actually is quite um, significant in the overall scheme of things. So the direction is not favorable for them. I can't square the idea that some Republicans, maybe a majority at this point, understand that Donald Trump has done something wrong, but also think that Joe Biden is politically persecuting his his enemies, right? I mean, that line that Biden is somehow a wannabe dictator and is intent on punishing Trump because he's his adversary seems to be pretty yeah. sticky. I mean, Republicans seem to be embracing that. And I kind of wonder whether you think the, you know, what, what the White House could and should do about that, because thus far, it yeah. 
stay out of it. Don't say anything. Don't have Democrats respond to this. Don't even talk about the indictment. And I wonder what you think of the wisdom of that strategy. Yeah, I, I do think, I mean, I think the, the White House moved to a somewhat more aggressive posture this week, especially around the Fox News stuff. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, someone mentioned earlier um, that, you know, it finds its way onto Fox News. It's not like they have to work to put it on Fox News. I mean, someone, you know, voluntarily put it on a Chiron saying, want to be dictator, you know, indicts or tries to, you know, jail his rival, whatever it was they said. And, you know, the, the White House press team and Andrew Bates and, um, you know, uh, Karan Jean-Pierre and everyone just, I mean, they have, they've sort of jumped on this and been much more vocal and much more frontal in saying, look, this won't stand. And, you know, I don't know if it goes further than that. And I don't know if there's any upside to doing that. But, but clearly they realize, they realize it's a problem and also it shouldn't just be not called on. Do you think that anybody, I mean, this seems like what they tried to do in 2020, say that Joe Biden was kind of like a rogue operator, a king, a self-appointed dictator who was also yeah. adult and like didn't want to go campaigning. Now they're saying he's a wannabe dictator. I mean, just in terms of general personality and disposition, I feel like that's a stretch to say that yeah. somehow Joe Biden, a very known quantity in American politics, is a wannabe dictator. It's like, go back yeah. to the drawing board maybe on that one. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, especially I mean, it's hard to be so addled and out of it. And on the other hand, such a uh, control freakish dictator. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so the messaging isn't exactly consistent. But but, you know, the larger point is that Joe Biden does not make a terribly convincing uh, wannabe dictator. I mean, this guy is a political lifer. I mean, this was not exactly you know, th this is this is someone who is familiar. You can go after him on any number of things. But but this seems like a bit of a stretch. And yeah, you're right. I don't think it's working. Well, we will see. It's we got time to go. Mark Leibovich, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you for spending your Friday night here, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. When we come back, new clues, new clues to special counsel Jack Smith's strategy as the prosecution of former President Trump moves forward. Plus, after Trump pardoned him, Bernie Carrick apparently tried to return the favor for a whole lot of money. everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with felony violations, of our national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. To that end, my office will seek a speedy trial in this matter. We very much look forward to presenting our case to a jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. From the moment special counsel Jack Smith announced charges against Donald Trump, he made it very clear that he is aiming for a speedy trial. The first sign of that was during Trump's arraignment on Tuesday, where the special counsel didn't demand any conditions for Trump's release. 
no cash bail, no handing over his passport, no travel restrictions. In other words, Mr. Trump is basically free to go and do whatever as long as he promises to show up for his hearings and doesn't commit any crimes or possibly any other crimes. That decision not to impose restrictions on the former president who is facing 37 felony counts, that decision surprised a lot of people, including the judge overseeing the initial proceedings, Judge Jonathan Goodman. Judge Goodman actually ended up going against the recommendations of both parties and imposed his own rules on Trump, what he called some additional special conditions. Those special conditions now prohibit Trump from discussing the case with his personal aide and his alleged co-conspirator, Walt Nauta, or with any other witnesses or victims included on a list that will be provided by the government. Now, all of this, including Judge Goodman's rule, all of this has prompted many experts to ask, why exactly is Jack Smith not being tougher on Trump? Is it because he's a former president? Is it some sort of double standard? Is this just the way things get done when you have a formal president, former president in court? Well, today, the New York Times is shedding a little bit of light on all of this. The Times reports that the lack of restrictions here could be a part of the special counsel strategy to speed up the process by avoiding distracting fights and political sensitivities, and also to let the indictment speak for itself. Quote, Mr. Smith's decision not to demand any conditions at the arraignment reflected a belief that prosecutors should avoid impairing Mr. Trump's ability to campaign. Smith is also seeking to dodge potentially distracting elements to a case focused on concrete evidence about the former president's handling of classified documents and efforts to obstruct government efforts to reclaim them. So Jack Smith trying to keep things focused and moving forward, which also informs a motion that the special counsel filed just a few hours ago, a motion for a protective order saying the government is ready to provide unclassified discovery to Trump's lawyers. So buckle up. And then there is this little interesting tidbit mentioned in that document. The motion protects against unauthorized disclosure of materials because they in part include information pertaining to ongoing investigations, the disclosure of which could compromise those investigations and identify uncharged individuals. Ongoing investigations. I have questions. Joining me, joining me now to answer them are Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, and John Fishwick, former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Virginia. Thank you both for being here tonight. It's just great to see you. John, can I just ask you whether this little, what I call spicy nugget in the latest filing, stuck out to you as it did to me, this notion of ongoing investigations and what exactly the special counsel's office might be referring to? Yeah, that's interesting, Alex. And thanks for having me back on your show. I think that is very interesting. And obviously, that could be folks from January 6th. That could be other folks related to the classified documents. I think it would be the classified documents. It could be that they're separate indictments. I think they want to keep the Trump indictment separate. They've got that on the fastest track that they can get it on. I think Jack Smith is laser focused on moving the classified documents case forward. That motion today shows he's he's following it by the book. He's not deferring too much to, to former President Trump. It's by the book. He's focused on the things that matter. It doesn't really matter about the bond with former President Trump. He's going to show up. We know who, what, is, what he looks like. But I think Jack Smith is laser focused on moving the case forward on the things that mattered. And that showed today with the evidence. He didn't want that evidence getting leaked out and shown to others. 
Uh, Joyce, I, I want to talk to you about the speed with which uh, Jack Smith is pursuing all of this. But I do, I would like to get your thoughts on the idea that, you know, the special counsel is worried that the disclosure of some of this material may affect an ongoing investigation. Does that at all suggest to you that there might be more indictments coming, as John, I think, just suggested in the Mar-a-Lago documents case? Or do you see that as uh, potential witnesses that are key to both the Mar-a-Lago and the January 6th investigation? So prosecutors tend to be very deliberate in their choice of words. And what strikes me here is the use of the plural investigations. Um, it suggests that there could be additional cases. They're directly saying that there could be additional defendants. And the interesting question here, I think the intrigue is, are we talking about Bedminster? Are we talking about a case in D.C.? Are we talking about additional people involved in Mar-a-Lago or perhaps in the packing up of these documents from D.C. before the move down? This is sort of a wide open question at this point based on this pleading, Alex. I think it can be dangerous to try to read the tea leaves when you can't see much of them at all. And here we don't really have much to go on. But it's clear that the special counsel is looking at, if not additional cases, then additional individuals. Um, it is important that Jack Smith has put forward this sort of a protective order so quickly. This is the first wave of discovery in this case. This is the unclassified discovery. There will be entirely separate proceedings to deal with classified material under SEPA. But this is this notion that we've already seen surface in Manhattan, that this is not a defendant who can be trusted with information about other people's finances information that's on other people's phones with the, the confidential information of witnesses. Is that because he's just untrustworthy in general or because there are concerns about witness intimidation? Again, we don't know for certain, but it seems likely that there are legitimate concerns about witness intimidation. And the most interesting thing about this protective order is that the Trump team did not fight it. It is a consent motion. They have agreed that it's necessary in this case. Why do you have an an inference to make about why Trump wouldn't fight this or his a defense team wouldn't fight this, given the implications that you just outlined? Right. I, I mean, I think the reason you don't fight it is because, you know, it's not going anywhere. And this is so interesting because Trump is always combative, always tells his lawyers to fight things. It looks like the lawyers may perhaps have prevailed upon the former president to let this one go. They may have said this is going to be entered in any event because of the nature of so much of this information. And maybe it is just that, because the special counsel says this is sensitive information. Even though it's not classified, it may reveal, for instance, um, sources and methods of collection, which the government protects vigorously. But there is always this leaning implication with Trump. And particularly when we see the allegations in the indictment about how he tried to persuade his lawyers, it's tough to believe that a protective order wasn't always going to be granted here. John, do you have a sense, I mean, just given the fact that, you know, I think yesterday uh, Judge Cannon uh, filed a motion for asking Trump's lawyers to contact the DOJ regarding their security clearances so that they could sort of get get started on uh, effectively checking out all of this evidence. Do you does that indicate to you that this could possibly be a speedy trial, the one that special counsel Smith actually wants? 
I think it does, Alex. I think that, you know, uh, Judge Cannon uh, jumped right on it right away, said, hey, look, lawyers, you guys need to get your clearances done so that we can start handing this evidence out and that you start looking through it. Uh, re- remember, she, I think, wants to move things. And I think uh, it went well for DOJ in many ways with her last time. I know there were the appeals to the 11th Circuit. But remember the whole fiasco with the special master that the Trump team went for and a lot of their efforts in front of her to you know, put up or shut up about, you know, declassifying documents went nowhere. And uh, I think that she's going to want to move this case. I think it's a good thing that a Trump appointed judge has this case. He's getting all the due process, all the fairness that he could possibly want. Jack Smith's got an incredibly strong case. Uh, I think he's going to make an effort to move it quickly with alacrity. But he's going to want to make sure that all the process favors the former president so that if there is a guilty verdict, and I expect there will, that there cannot, can't be any complaints about it. Uh, Joyce, I got to ask you, there's some new reporting from The Wall Street Journal tonight that is raising a- eyebrows, at least on the, the team that puts this show together, including myself. I'll quote what The Wall Street Journal reports, and this is about Special Counsel Smith's other investigation into January 6th. This is talking about witnesses who have testified in front of the grand jury. Questions directed at some of those testifying in the post-election investigation have been wide-ranging, leading some of them to come away thinking Smith's team was more interested in gathering details for a report rather than for any specific indictment. Uh, Do you have a reaction to that, Joyce? So it's interesting reporting. Um, like you, I have questions, right? I want to know who the witnesses are. Is this something that someone said to them or are they just speculating? And of course, when you consider the source, if this is coming from folks in the Trump camp, perhaps they want to project this image that there won't be indictments. But that said, a special counsel has a lot of different options. And we saw in the Mueller report, a special counsel who did write a report, a voluminous report, but did not recommend charges. Of course, in that case, it was because Trump was then the president and DOJ policy constrained them from uh, seeking an indictment. Based on the evidence that we have seen to date and the witnesses that special counsel appears to be interviewing, it would be, I think, surprising if no one was charged in connection with January 6th. Prosecutors often pursue a strategy where they indict some folks who they have a solid case against, and then they flip them and move up the chain. It's tough to believe that Smith would back off of a target like Trump, the one who, of course, um, you have to believe or you have to be looking for evidence of his involvement in January 6th. And to just walk away from that without making some sort of an effort with lower level witnesses seems very unlikely. Okay, so Joyce Vance says, kind of sus, wants to know who said it. (laughs) Joyce Vance, John Fishwick, thank you for making the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Good night, Alex. We have still more to come this evening. The long and twisted saga of a former New York City police commissioner (laughs) turned convicted felon, turned Trump world hanger on, named Bernie Carrick. There is a new twist, if you can believe it. That is next. And later, after Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted of the murder of George Floyd, the Justice Department took a long and hard look at the Minneapolis Police Department and what they uncovered is coming right up. Stay with us. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. 
Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. It was November of 2007, and Rudy Giuliani was a leading candidate for the Republican presidential nomination. It is almost hard to imagine now, but Rudy Giuliani was, at the time, considered a serious candidate. He was leading John McCain nationally by double digits. And it was around that time that things started to tilt away from America's mayor, starting with a scandal involving one of his old friends. Rudy Giuliani today asked voters not to judge him by his mistakes, including failing to thoroughly check out longtime friend, protege, and business partner Bernard Carrick. When you're mayor of New York, you make 100,000 decisions. Some of them you make wrong. He spoke as Carrick is expected to face federal criminal charges in New York tomorrow. Prosecutors have alleged he took gifts from a company with reputed organized crime ties while in charge of New York City's prisons and helped the company try to get a city license. Rudy Giuliani's longtime friend and former New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Bernie Carrick had just been indicted on corruption charges, including tax fraud, obstruction of justice and lying to the White House. That last charge stemmed from the fact that Bernie Carrick had become a prominent figure in the George W. Bush administration and was even briefly considered at one point for the job of Homeland Security Secretary. But that all came crashing down after the FBI charged Bernie Carrick in that corruption case. He would eventually plead guilty to eight felony counts. And the trial of Bernie Carrick was kind of a big mess full of oddly familiar storylines and characters whom you might recognize. For instance, at one point, Carrick sued one of his lawyers for turning on him and becoming a witness for the prosecution. That lawyer was future Trump attorney Joe Tacopina. And the man who represented Carrick in the case against Tacopina was another future Trump, Trump lawyer, Tim Parlatori. Because I guess there are only like five guys who do criminal defense law for corrupt Republicans and just have to kind of cycle through them. Anyway, that all should have been the moment that Bernie Carrick disappeared from public life. But there are nothing but second acts in Republican politics. And so Bernie Carrick did not go away. He reinvented himself again and again. At one point in the middle of his legal battle, Carrick became an uncredited extra on the hit Bravo reality show, Real Housewives of New Jersey, when he showed up to train one of the housewives' dogs. That actually happened. Carrick eventually patched things up with his old pal, Rudy Giuliani, and became another shadowy figure in Trump world. That was how, in 2020, Bernie Carrick found himself on the receiving end of a pardon from then-President Donald Trump. And now we may have learned just how Bernie Carrick intended to return that favor with what one might call the opportunity of a lifetime. 
New emails released in an ongoing defamation case against Rudy Giuliani reveal that in December of 2020, Bernie Carrick approached Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, with an offer. Bernie Carrick told Mark Meadows that he had a plan for how to help Trump overturn the election results by pressuring state legislators into sending fake electors who would then back Trump. There was just one thing Bernie Carrick needed in order to pull off this plan. He needed a big pile of money. Quoting from Carrick's email to Meadows, we're estimating it's going to run between five to eight million. With all due respect, we don't want the campaign comms people involved. There's only one thing that's going to move the needle and force the legislators to do what they're constitutionally obligated to do, and that is apply pressure. Now, it does not appear that Bernie Carrick ever got the five to eight million dollars to go through with his plan. But we do know that the Trump team did engage in a major effort to get states to send those fake electors to Washington, D.C. And these new emails show us just how important that idea had become to the people around Donald Trump at the time. But maybe more importantly, these new emails show us how much the Trump cinematic universe is, at its core, basically a bunch of grifters looking for their next payout. There is no reason to believe convicted felon Bernie Carrick had any special magic to make state legislators throw the election for Trump and no indication of why in the world he needed five to eight million dollars to do it. But when you base your plot to upend an election on a big lie and you surround yourself with known liars and con artists to carry it out, you really can't be that surprised when they start trying to get a little piece of that action themselves. When we come back, the damning results of an investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Stay with us. After MPD officers stopped a car carrying four Somali-American teens, one officer told the teens, quote, Do you remember what happened in Black Hawk Down when we killed a bunch of your folk? I'm proud of that. We didn't finish the job over there. If we had, you guys wouldn't be over here right now. As everybody, everyone no doubt knows, this is a reference to the 1990s raid by American Special Forces in Mogadishu. That was Merrick Garland this morning sharing a very disturbing anecdote included in the findings of the Justice Department's two-year investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department. The DOJ launched its review in the wake of George Floyd's death and the murder conviction of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer who kneeled on Floyd's neck and killed him. Today, in a damning 89-page report, the Justice Department accused the Minneapolis Police Department of rampant use of excessive force, unlawful discrimination, and violations of constitutional rights. Here are more of the shocking examples of the abuses they discovered. In a review of 19 shootings from January 2016 to August of last year, investigators found, quote, a significant portion of them were unconstitutional uses of deadly force. At times, officers shot at people without first determining whether there was an immediate threat of harm to the officers or others. The report recounts the story of a woman who was shot and killed by an officer who was reportedly spooked when she walked up to his car to report a possible sexual assault. 
Investigators say the officers' policing practices changed depending on the neighborhoods they found themselves in. Quote, MPD disproportionately stops Black and Native American people and patrols differently based on the racial composition of the neighborhood without a legitimate related safety rationale. Investigators also found that Minneapolis police officers all often failed to take seriously the health complaints of the people they arrested. Quote, we found numerous incidents in which officers responded to a person's statement that they could not breathe with a version of, you can breathe, you're talking right now. You may recall that George Floyd's last words were, I can't breathe. Joining us now is Philip Atiba Goff. Dr. Goff is the chair of African-American studies and professor of psychology, Yale University. He's also a co-founder of the Center for Policing Equity. Dr. Goff, thanks for being here tonight. I feel like it's always a dark moment in America when we have these conversations. But I guess, you know, at this point, maybe it shouldn't be striking the the animus, the deep-seated hatred some of these officers have for the community that they're supposed to protect. Um what did you make of this report? Yeah, it, it's ugly. Um, if it doesn't shock your conscience, um, then you've been uh, looking at too much that's dirty for the soul. Um, it should feel shocking and disgusting and ugly. Um, what I made of the report is that it looks, first of all, thank goodness for Kristen Clark and for the good women, men and bi- non-binary folks in the special litigation unit that do incredibly thankless work that make this possible, that allow us to read this kind of stuff. Um, but also thank goodness for the men, women, and non-binary folks um, in the Minnesota um, Human Rights uh, uh, Department that did a very similar report and uh, that also led to a negotiated consent decree in the state back in March. I'm very glad that these kinds of things are available to um, communities that need something like remedy after all of this ugliness. But the thing that strikes me the most is that I'm hearing people talk about, well, this is some measure of justice and this is some measure forward without considering the scale of the problem. Mm. It's not just the ugliness of these incidents, but we have about 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the United States and the U.S. government at best, when it was doing the most of these under Obama, did about three investigations a year. We've got eight investigations open right now. You're not going to get to 18,000 three a year. And I got to say, Minneapolis, as ugly and disgusting, we worked there. I know that department very well. As ugly and disgusting as parts of it are, it's not in the top 50 worst police departments in the country. So if we're going to really solve what is a national level problem, we got to have more than just this one federal remedy for it. Well, yeah. And you point, I mean, can we talk also about consent decrees? I mean, there are more than a dozen police departments under consent decrees that go back decades. First of all, just Tell me about what you, your general opinion is of dissent decrees. I think um, today that they plan to place the Minneapolis Police Department under a consent decree. To, to your mind, what is or how effective are they? And for people who don't really understand what they are, I mean, let's start with what you what they are and how effective they are. Sure. So in 1994, the much maligned um, uh, crime bill, the 94 crime bill um, that uh, Biden, for better or for worse, gets tons of credit for, gives the provision that the federal government can go and investigate and then um, use the, its power uh, to essentially regulate out of control law enforcement with an investigation and then a consent decree. The consent decree is the parties get together. 
They say, this is what we're going to do to solve all of these hideous problems that just came to light from the investigation. And usually there's a monitor that's put into place to regulate, yes, the department is in compliance with that. So the idea is that there's a plan that's negotiated that gets the department from the terrible place they're in to a better place. Um, It clearly has not fixed the departments that have been under a consent decree. Also, it is clearly better than nothing. There are things that happen under consent decree, and both the folks in these communities and the law enforcement leaders that are there will tell you they couldn't have gotten done if the federal government didn't get involved. But it is weak sauce compared to the size and the scope of the problem in an individual department, much less the problem that we've got nationally. So while I'm glad that it happens, again, hats off to DOJ, civil rights, Kristen Clark and her team, um, it is it is so small compared to what we we see and what we're literally reading about um, as to be another indictment on our capacity to hold departments and institutions accountable when they engage in such explicitly white supremacist violence. Well, yeah, and I and I think that was I, I wanted to get to that, which is well, you can't ignore the origins of policing in this country, the slave patrol origins, right? And the question is, and I know that this is act, I mean, it's asking sort of the impossible of you, but whether you think we are at the point in the conversation around criminal justice and policing and what it means to have a safe community, where policing in the 21st century will look different than it did in the 20th and the 19th centuries. So that is a moral question to the country you're asking there, Alex, because if we want things to actually change, it has to. But do I think that there is enough momentum amongst our electeds? I, I got to say, um, I, I wish I felt more optimistic than I did. Um, we, we see experiment after experiment, initiative after initiative across the country, where instead of investing in more punishment, we're investing upstream. Right. Investing in um, mental health resources, investing in uh, homelessness resources, which is to say housing, investing in after school programs. And lo and behold, we get less crime on the other end of that. So what would it look like if we invested in care instead of punishment for our most vulnerable communities? We have no idea because as a nation, we have failed to do that. And if we don't, What I really worry about for this next electoral cycle, in fact, in 2024, is that just like we almost saw in 2022, there will be the same playbook where folks weaponize the fear of brown people coming to your neighborhood and committing crimes. And the result of that will be a further investment across the board, left and right in this country, um, in more punishment. We're going to see more of the same that until there's more investigations like this and more terrible readings like this that the attorney general reads out, we're going to pretend like we couldn't see coming. When we've done this for literally hundreds of years in this country. Oh, the devastating, brilliant Dr. Philip Ativagoff. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Really appreciate your wisdom and perspective on this. Thanks for having the conversation, Alex. We have one more story for you tonight about how North Carolina's war against wokeness in the workplace has backfired. That's next. North Carolina's Democratic Governor Roy Cooper today used his veto on a bill that prohibits state government workplaces and employee training programs from promoting certain concepts. These prohibited concepts may sound familiar at this point. An individual solely by virtue of his or her race or sex bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. An individual solely by virtue of his race or sex should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress. And a meritocracy is inherently racist or sexist. All of those concepts are prohibited from being promoted in government workplaces. 
This language is nearly identical to Florida's so-called Stop Woke Act, which not only attacked teaching about systemic racism in schools, but also attacked diversity, equity, and inclusion in workplace trainings. Today, when he vetoed this bill, Governor Cooper issued this statement. It is troubling that a legislature that witnessed open racism on the floor of the House of Representatives wants to stop training aimed at creating a more effective and understanding workforce. Instead of pretending that bias and racism don't exist, the legislature should instead encourage training that can help eliminate discrimination so we can work toward common goals. The governor's reference to the open racism on the state floor, well, that happened about a month ago when a white Republican asked a black Democrat just how he got into Harvard. Would you have been able to maybe achieve this if you were not an athlete or a minority? When I graduated from Harvard, I was in rank two. So I earned my place and I did well. The Republican later apologized, explaining that what he tried to say didn't come out right, and he was removed from a party leadership position. But maybe all of this could have been avoided had he, I don't know, been given some kind of workplace training on racism and the racism inherent in asking a black person to justify his admission to an Ivy League institution. The bill passed by a veto-proof majority, so now North Carolina lawmakers have a chance to rethink their stance on all of this. The question is, will they take it? That is the show for tonight. 